You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Mark, chapter 8 in your Bibles. Um, we are continuing on halfway mark of, halfway mark of Mark, of uh, the, the, the suffering servant theme. Um, and Jesus says, um, kind of, in a very sobering and identifying way of who he is and why he came, that I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And really, the whole story was told in a nutshell. When Jesus got baptized, the very first thing that he did was to go into the desert, not into ministry. Because it was in the desert that he heard his father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's the thing about a servant. A servant can't be a celebrity. Because a celebrity is always working for and conjuring and proving and dancing and arguing and bullying to try and get the approval of others. In other words, in this world, love has strings. But a servant doesn't have strings. A servant serves because of a calling. And it's a dangerous person to serve, like Jesus did, without bullies, without bribes, without being able to be fooled. He lived his life according to one conviction. My father loves me, and I've been sent on this mission to serve and not to be served. And, and that's what we're sort of seeing as the domino outcome in the, in the life and the ministry of Jesus is, is, is um, what does that what does that calling look like in the life of Jesus and disciples? Have you ever, uh, like me, ever experienced something called deja vu before? It's this really weird thing where you're talking to somebody, you're experiencing a moment, and something is so familiar with this moment that you're sure that it's happened before. You're convinced that uh, somewhere along the line you were in this very kitchen. It feels like that very toddler came in and said that very thing while I was just about to talk and interrupt my conversation. Maybe that's just uh, the way that kids work, but still, life can be quirky sometimes, and you could swear that some of the moments we experience have happened almost identically to moments that we've had um, in the past. I used to have a, um, a reoccurring dream. Uh, it was kind of a nightmare. It was worse nightmares than, than I've had in my life, but this reoccurring dream was kind of weird when I was about seven. You can tell a lot about me, but by the dream that I had that I uh, would reoccurringly have uh, Swiss cheese skin. And uh, so that was a very disarming and vulnerable feeling um, to kind of be able to walk around and you to see my muscle tissue and that little anatomy bio uh, dummy that was in your, in your science class was me with the skin open and you could see inside of it. Uh, and it was real sad. It was gross. Uh, it was a kind of reoccurring dream that I had. And, I, and I've sworn before that when me and Kyra talk and exchange uh, sometimes moments about deja vu that I swear that those moments have not only happened right then, but they've happened together at the same time. And so there, I'm a big believer, uh, I guess, in the existence of deja vu. Whether or not you've experienced it literally, I guess you could all admit that we've experienced deja vu figuratively in the sense that all of us um, are, uh, are living um, in new experiences every day, but they represent kind of similar themes that can tend to repeat themselves over and over again. In other words, like um, you might have had a bully in seventh grade that shoved you up against a locker, but graduating from seventh grade didn't graduate from bullies. Like continually, no matter how you are, there's always going to be somebody that's pushing against your boundaries. There's always somebody that's going to be using intimidation and their strength against the weak. There's always something going around you where you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to cower away in fear or are you going to stand firm against the opposition that you live in? You never graduate from bullies. All of us have a repetitive and redundant relationship with men in this room. Could be good or could be bad. Could be abusive. Could be neglecting. Could be um, something that warms your heart, that you have a good relationship with your father, but just because you don't live under the household of your dad, it doesn't mean you're still not going to have repetitive and redundant deja vu relationships with men in your life or women in your life. You have a relationship with your mom, but leaving college does not 
change the relationship that you're always going to have women in your life, sisters and moms and cousins, and, and that, that deja vu will always be reoccurring no matter what. All of us in this room have a relationship with money. And the first $10 that we ever got into our bank account is probably the same spiritual, if Jesus hasn't changed us, it's some of the same spiritual values and viewpoints of the way that we looked at money back in a piggy bank for $10 is how much we think about $10,000 or $100,000, that money is a repetitive and redundant theme in our life that we're just sort of not getting away from. And so the Bible gets that. It's not written to help us imagine some esoteric, mythical idea off in the skies. The Bible is written for you and me. It's written for us to understand our world through God's viewpoint. And so it itself has redundancies and deja vus throughout the pages of Scripture, uh, if if not to relate to us or to teach us about really core themes. Like, for example, did you know that in in Adam and Eve's narrative, the the verbs there to see and to take um, and to desire are words that don't just stop with Adam and Eve. In fact, the seeing and the taking and the desire is the same thing that Esau did when he took the blessing. It's the same thing that David said when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. It was the same thing that, uh, that Jesus did when he takes, not um, from people, but breaks his own body and gives it to, to, to his disciples. It's the same exact words because the redundancies and deja vu of life are not, are not um, just random. Uh, being saved through water. Like the Moses story or the Noah story doesn't end with Moses and Noah. It goes to our own baptism or even the disciples on the boat or Acts, you know, Paul in the, in the book of Acts in his way to Jerusalem. It seems that disciples, no matter how long you go into the Bible, are never getting away from water. That it's not around struggles and, tri- and waves and, and, and turbulence, but through the waters of baptism that we are saved and sanctified. But the themes in the deja vu of the Bible are pretty obvious when you start doing some digging and looking. And so here we are at the very uh, end of uh, chapter 8, and it marks kind of um, a a shelf, really, of the end of Jesus' public ministry. Beyond 8, he goes into more of a private, seclusive time with his disciples, and then in chapter 10, he reemerges to return to Jerusalem for his passion. So it goes public, private, passion within the thing of, 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 uh, of the book of Mark. And so we're saying goodbye to a really core theme between 1 and 8, and that is what I'd like to call the bread and the boat theme. If you look up there on the screen, um, there's actually been you know, five different instances in which the disciples are having an encounter with the theme of bread, and then directly after it, getting involved into an important ministry moment with a boat. So in the beginning, in chapter 4, you guys remember that Jesus has taken a nap because he's, um, he is so unstirred and, and, and not unsettled by the waves around him. We have to wake him up for a nap for him to speak to the storm. Following that, he goes off into the mountains of Galilee, and he feeds 5,000 men, which would represent probably 10,000 people, on the hill of Galilee to feed them bread. But then he's not done with the boat because after that he brings them back to that same exact boat. This time he's not asleep in the boat. He's praying on a mountain and then emerges on the third watch of the night when Jesus stops talking to storms but actually just walks on them. And after that we're not done with the bread theme because today we're going to read in chapter 8 of feeding not 5,000 but 4,000 people on the mountain in a Gentile region. And then back to the boat we're going to close up in chapter 8 with a final boat moment. But all of that being said, the repetitions and redundancies, they are helping us with our learning Every time you stand to a bully, you learn something new about bullies, don't you? And you learn something new about yourself. And every time you meet a man who's just made of flesh and blood, you learn something more about men, what they are and what they're not. Every time you get money in your bank account, you're, you're supposed to be learning about what money is and what it's not. That there's something more than money and more than men and more than jobs and more than all the stuff that deep down inside what the disciples should be learning about all of this stuff is not the importance of bread, but the importance of Jesus. The point of the idea of feeding 
people bread is not Jesus saying, follow me, I'll be your welfare for the rest of your life and no one will ever go hungry. What he's trying to demonstrate is that more important than the body is the soul and that Jesus is not just giving people bread, that he is the bread of life and that meals are either manna or they're maggots based on whether or not we believe Jesus fed them to us because Jesus doesn't just give us bread, he is bread. And we are learning or we're not learning with every meal that we, sh- we share with our spouses and our family, every meal that we break bread, we're, we're either learning that we are being paid by bread or just being fed by God to receive manna. We're either learning that or we're not. That Jesus is the boat that really there is no boat, no boat that's safe enough, that's actually going to keep us safe if Jesus is not on the boat with us. Safety is not a great insurance plan. Safety is Jesus. And we are learning these lessons through these repetitions over and over again. And so we have one last lesson to learn. And that is the, the lesson I would like to call the leaven lesson. And uh, this is the cryptic, kind of eerie and enigmatic statement that Jesus says right in the middle of this bread boat uh, narrative here. He says to the disciples as they get off the mountain eating the bread and come into the boat, this time without waves and without storms. Verse 15, Mark 8, be careful, Jesus warns them, to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. This is a very scary, eerie feeling. Um, because for the very first time, they're on the boat and there is no waves to be worried about. They actually have a loaf of bread that's sitting right there and he's, he wouldn't tell them to be weary or, or, or to warn them of something if there wasn't something that's troubling. But as they look around, there's no waves and there's actually, there's, 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 there's no lack of provision or bread within the boat. And he speaks to them and he talks about, you notice he uses the furthest people, the most traditionalist, legalistic people you could think of, which is the Pharisees, and the most hedonistic uh, left-wing uh, side of things, the, 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 um, the uh, Herods, the Herodians, and he says that the, that the yeast, the small, subtle, kingdom-building substance that contaminates the kingdoms of both the hyper-religious and the hyper-rebellious is not unique to this boat. Even without waves and with enough bread on the boat, you are not immune from the yeast that builds these evil kingdoms. And so he ends this, Mark chapter 8, the public side of Jesus' ministry in the, in, in the middle of Mark, with this leaven lesson. And so we're going to look at four different scenes to process what he might mean by the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. That is a scene that's about feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. A scene that has to do with the farewell of the Pharisees. From now on out, he will see them more as enemies than as friends. He will confront them, not call them. By the, by the second scene. The third scene is about a forewarning, an opportunity for the disciples to see the line between them and the Pharisees and question, what is that line that makes me any different from a Pharisee in the first place? A forewarning for the disciples, and lastly, freedom from what I think is the yeast of the Pharisees by seven distinct questions that Jesus asked those disciples and he'd ask us. We'll start in scene one, the feeding, at the top of Mark chapter eight. So instead of reading it word for word, since there's a lot of redundancies, I'm just going to point out just quickly the comparisons and the juxtapositions between Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8. If you guys remember from Mark chapter 6, if you were here, pretty simple. Jesus comes out, tired, hungry, seeing all of the hungry people on the mountain, tells his disciples that there's compassion in my heart. It comes from my gut. I can't eat another meal before I feed these people. And so he, he has compassions on the crowd. He multiplies the five and the two. He feeds everyone, and lo and behold, not only are they satisfied, they have more than enough in the baskets that are left over. The same exact thing is about to happen in this mountain with these people in this crowd, but it's a little bit different. So here's a chart on the screen that kind of differentiates the differences between the two stories because the story develops as it changes over time. There's a a storyline that's being told here. So look at the chart there. Here's the differences. Number one, 
Number one, in Mark chapter 6, there's feeding of 5,000, but in Mark chapter 8, there's feeding of 4,000. The number actually decreases. Number two, you're going to notice that the, the major demographic of the people that he fed in the first mountain was mainly Jews. Those are the covenant, the, the, the covenant of Abraham, whereas the crowd that is making up the second uh, group of people that he's feeding 4,000 is mainly Gentiles. You're going to notice that uh, the time period, the lapse of time between when Jesus has compassion and when the miracle happens, extends from one day to three days. It says that in the, in the feeding of the 4,000 that uh, they go on for three days and they're, they're so hungry, Jesus feels like he's worried for their lives. And so he feeds them after three days because of the timing. And then in terms of the, the quantities, the offerings and the leftovers, there's very distinct numbers that are going on. If you notice in the first story, there's five loaves and two fish. Fish kind of represents discipleship and the dropping of nets and the following of him, the faith that meets the grace of Jesus. But in the second story, there is no faith. There's just grace. It's just Jesus doing all the work. And there are fish that are involved, but they don't bring them. It's just a gift that goes on. And the leftover numbers are very significant as well in the sense that 12 Baskets definitely represents the 12 tribes of Israel, whereas in the Gentile miracle, there's seven baskets, which represents completeness, but it also represents the 70 nations that is represented in Genesis of the table of nations of all the nations coming to Jesus. All that being said, there's a lot more going on than just a bunch of hungry people and God doing a cool miracle in their midst. Jesus is doing a lot more than a welfare ministry. He's not just feeding bodies. He's saving souls. If all he wanted to do was feed bodies, he wouldn't wait for three days and teach them before he feeds them if he didn't believe that their soul was actually more important than their body and that he wouldn't want to give somebody a miracle to think that he was a bread maker and not understand he's a savior. And so, so much unlike to our dismay, we find out from one story to the next that Jesus is not just here for the Jews, he is here for the world, that Jesus is not just feeding bodies, he is saving souls. And that God is doing a work that is needing really no help of man in all of the work of God because this miracle comes by faith and not by works. So what is the, 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 the nutshell kind of moral in the story, the meaning behind this miracle if we're paying attention? As some of the crowd doesn't pay attention and comes after him to get more bread and he says, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood the next day. He's not here to just start a bread pantry. The meaning of the feedings is not that Jesus is our great chef, but that he's our great savior. Now this comes to a surprise you know, to us, and, and, it, and it's hard to relate to this story a lot because we can't ignore the fact that you and I are sitting today in probably one of the wealthiest countries of the history of the world, that probably none of us has gone without a meal in our entire lives for the sake of lacking having food. But isn't it also true that our country could probably testify and prophesy more than any other country that there's tons of ways to be full in your belly and empty in your soul at the same time? that our country could probably in any other time in history recognize that sometimes the Maslow's hierarchy of needs inverts itself when sometimes we would think that you would have to feed the body before the soul. Really, you could be so full of the body. Why do people lose their, 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 their heart and their emotional health and, and even their purpose over time when their belly is so full but their soul is, soul is empty if not for the fact that the soul, the body is made for the soul and the soul is not made for the body? That that having your belly full or having your belly empty is not really the source of satisfaction so much as being full or empty of Jesus that satisfies a soul. That when we go on a fast, sometimes we realize that although we're hungrier than ever, somehow we still feel more alive than when we had enough food in our fridge. That there's more to life than bread and that Jesus wants to speak to both of those things. But the difference between manna and maggots way back in the Old Testament is really whether or not I believe that I made the bread for myself and stored it away in my tent or whether or not God gave it to me. Every meal we have is either a lesson to see that we're fed 
or an insecurity to believe that I feed myself. Manna or maggots based on if I'm fed or if I feed myself. And so if you stop and think about it, the car that you have and the money that you have in your wallet and the spouse that you have in your house, if you have a spouse or the kids that you have in your house, they, they, they are coming to you in either one of those two transactions. Either I made this happen or this is a gift given to me. And all of those days are either blessed or wasted based on whether or not I actually believe I earn my life or God gives it to me as a gift. And the last thing that Jesus would want us to do, it would turn our life literally into maggots if we were to believe that we provide a daily bread rather than Jesus. That seems to be what Jesus is saying with his, with his miracle. So scene two, first there's a feeding and then there's a farewell. Verse 11. The Pharisees come to, to Jesus and they begin to question him. Now that word question is very antagonistic and aggressive. It's not the kind of like, I really curiously want to know kind of a question. It's more of the like, I want to prove you wrong kind of a question. It's a cornering inquisition type of a question. And it says as much in the next sentence that it says that they came with the heart to test him. That biblical word of testing is what the Israelites continued to do in the desert with God. And God actually has a commandment that the Israelites were doing wrong in that to test the Lord your God while you're in a test is a sin. Now, if you've ever any kids, you know exactly what this means because... um, uh, oftentimes, uh, if you have kids or you deal with kids, uh, what you're going to re- receive and experience is a lot like God experiences with the Israelites, is that when kids are put into tests, when they're put into eighth grade and when they've failed the test and when they have a girlfriend break up with them or the homework curve doesn't end up the way that they want to, the last thing that they do is learn from the test. The first thing they do is blame the people around them. Have we seen that? Or maybe in your own life, is that one of the best lines, I guess, that a parent I always love to throw at my kids when they, when they try to test me is, I've been through eighth grade before. I don't need to pass this test. (laughs) This is not my test. This is your test. But make no mistake about it, whether you're dealing with in-laws or kids or people, the first thing that they do when they receive a test is test other people. It's to figure out why somebody else is to blame or why somebody else didn't give them the job or didn't give them the opportunity or didn't give them the time of day. Usually when people are tested, the pain of that makes them project the test on others, most of which is we test God. And so he sighs deeply, it says in verse 12, It's paired with the deep sigh of compassion, the groan of compassion he has for the crowds. He has a deep sign and a sigh of contempt for the Pharisees over this testing. And he says, this is not an individual thing that's going on. This is a generational thing. This is an entire epidemic of testing. That instead of being a child and being raised up and and using this challenge to grow into your fullness, you are testing the Lord your God, escaping and trying to project um, uh, your your own test. And so this is a generational issue. Why do you ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, and this is a strong word in the Greek here, no sign will be given to it. The, the, the colloquial, uh, colloquial translation for American English today would be something like, I will not show you a sign over my dead body. This is the sternness of what Jesus says. I will show you a sign over my dead body. Now what's ironic about this is that in Matthew, he actually says, I will show you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah, which is to be buried in the whale for three days, referring to his death. And so figuratively and literally, Jesus is saying, my dead body will be the sign. I will be the dead body that will be raised to life on the third day. And I will be the sign, not to kill your enemies, but to save your soul. Ultimately, the reason why they were testing him is they didn't like the answer that he gave. He was giving. He was multiplying 4,000 loaves of bread. You think that's a sign enough from heaven that it's God? They didn't want the sign of bread. They wanted the sign of the sword. They wanted the sign of judgment to judge the nations and free them from the Romans. They wanted a Messiah that would come and kill their enemies, but he gave them a Messiah that would die for enemies. And that's the great difference between the expectation. And so he leaves them. And this is quite the farewell, the parting, so to speak, that he will have to come back on uh, Palm Sunday 
not to invite them, but to confront them is what's going to be happening the next time he engages Pharisees in verse 13. Then he left them to go back in the boat and crossed over to the other side. And so uh, it reminds me of this time I was listening to this Bill Maurer uh, podcast whereby uh, Bill um, is kind of going off about why Christianity is a hoax and how there's too many uh, biblical um, uh, controversies that are going on and the history of the church is um, abusive towards, um, towards women and towards slaves and, and it has you know, a, a lot of hypocrisy in it. So that's why he doesn't believe in the Bible. And uh, I remember listening to it, you know, kind of getting startled and, you know, weighing it out in my own heart, and my own spirit, you know, that some of that argument is, is, is valid, despite the fact that Jesus did not say to come and believe unto the church to get saved, it's to believe unto Jesus to get saved. But really, there's an important question we should be asking ourselves, because we're like Bill in some of these ways, coming up with all these arguments for why Christianity doesn't exist and why we don't follow him, is that all the stuff that he's talking about women and slaves and politics and wars, I'm probably pretty certain that all the talking that he's doing in argument and rhetoric that he's not doing a lot to help women and slaves and poor in the world. The great problem with the rhetoric and the arguments of men is that no matter how many arguments you make against Jesus, the arguments tend to come right back at you because of all the hypocrisy that we would point and blame and test others in the world or test God. It comes right back out of us because the easiest doctrine to prove in this world is human depravity. And that the real problem is not that God has not passed the test, the real problem is that we all will have to stand before Jesus as the test. And we will either come before him claiming our own self-righteousness or we will need to beg on his. And no matter what kind of rhetorics or arguments or blames about political systems or programs or churches or things that people did to you, all of us will not avoid the test. We will have to stand before Jesus and plead on his forgiveness or not. And so this highlights a very important line, I think, in distinction between the life of a Pharisee and the life of a follower. The life of somebody questioning Jesus and the life of somebody just asking questions is that Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. It's a great irony and a paradox and really a misnomer that doubt is an enemy to faith. Actually, doubt is a vehicle to faith because true doubt is asking questions in a sincere quest for the truth. And Jesus is not afraid of sincere quests for the truth. If you're upset about why churches divide and why there isn't as much healing as you wish there was or that pastors continue to fall, I guarantee you that Jesus is not worried about those questions because any questions that's truly seeking truth, that's truly curious, will come to find Jesus because Jesus is at the pinpoint of the truth. But the problem is, is that we're not really looking for the truth. That the Pharisaical spirit is not actually after answers. It's after excuses. It's after some reason why I don't need to follow the truth or be accountable to the truth or do something for my own neighbor or the person in my own mirror. The philosophical idea here is there's a difference between doubt and unbelief because doubt is a search and a quest for truth, but belief is an avoidance of it. And that's what's being practiced here. And so I want to invite you, like as a Christian, as a pastor, ask your questions. God is not afraid of your questions, but be wary of your questioning. Be leery of the questions that have ammunition behind it that are really not about finding the truth, but actually running from it. That's, I think, where the line is. So we have a third scene, and that's the scene of a forewarning to the disciples. He says in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And you guys just woke up one day and realized that that little lightning connector in your iPhone had too much dust and your phone's not charged. And your whole day comes cascading down. I mean, I know that you're a secure, uh, mature human being. But when your iPhone is dead in the morning, it's not going to be a good day. You're going to be like one of those constant beggars asking for people for hits on the street. Can I get a little bit of your MagSafe wallet or whatever? You know, you're going to try to get your phone. It's not a good feeling to wake up and the first thing that's going on is you forget something. That's not a good feeling. And so 
you read this, this verse here, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And when you read that, at face value, you relate to it, but also you can sense the subtle irony, right, of this statement. Because the real problem for these disciples is obviously not that they've forgotten the bread. It's that they've forgotten that they just got done seeing a guy multiply one piece of bread into 4,000. In other words, the disciples' biggest problem is not that they're worried about bread. It's that they forgot the bread maker. You don't have to worry about bread when you're sitting next to the dude that multiplies bread. And so the real problem that Mark is pinpointing here is not that they forgot bread. It's they forgot Jesus was the problem. So verse 15, be careful, he says, Jesus warns them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And Matthew even talks about the Sadducees, from the greatest, most uh, legalistic Pharisees to the non-resurrection believing, uh, liberal um, Sadducees, all the way to the hedonists and the lawless of the Herodians, all across the span, no matter all the way left or all the way right, they all struggle with one problem. They can't agree on anything, but here's what they do agree on. They all have this yeast inside of them. And it's a very eerie thing that this riddle kind of happens because there's no waves around them and there's no Herodians in sight. And there's a piece of bread and they're fighting over who forgot to bring the bread. And Jesus warns them, even though there's not waves around them and there is bread around their boat and there's no Herodians or Pharisees in sight, that the yeast doesn't stay in the kingdoms of the Gentiles. The yeast lives in each of us. It's a kind of eerie feeling that, that sets in and once makes us want to interpret what he means by that. In verse 16, they discussed with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Just, I remember one time in teaching, uh, I got all the way um, to the end of the year for this EOC and I taught my heart out and was like, who is the teacher? Who is the president in the Great Depression? They were like, George Washington. I'm like, it's over. I quit. It's like, there's literally nothing you can do. Like, seriously? Like the yeast of the Pharisees and you think it's because you didn't have your sourdough starter? Like, what in the world is going on? It's because we have no bread. Just not working with smart people. I relate. So, to understand what, what we're talking about with the yeast of the Pharisees, we've got to think about sourdough. And, and, uh, and this is my favorite topic right now. You know what sourdough is? It's guilt-free bread. That's what sourdough is. Somebody on a podcast one day and said it's good for your gut, and now I'm just cramming honey and butter and, and, and uh, sourdough for the good of the world right now. Loving all the sourdough. I don't have to make it. Kyra makes it. She treats it almost like it's a little like meditation in the morning. And I wake up, and there's just fresh bread in my kitchen, like I'm just out of a, a, you know, a Betty Crocker commercial. It's fantastic. I'm loving the sourdough movement. And, uh, and it's a really funny thing. Um, sourdough has this little thing called a starter, and we named our starter Stevie. And uh, Stevie is really great, and we actually let people use part of the sourdough starter because it's like a communal fellowship bread that you spread the stuff, and it goes all over, and you build the bread. And uh, it's a little bit weird. I don't like to call it. It is called technically the mother starter, and I, I don't like that. I don't like thinking that there is a mother yeast or something uh, in my fridge. I, something about that that seems weird. I didn't invent it, so don't blame me. I didn't bring that up. But sourdough is the illustration that Jesus has used, and it, 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 it incurs on us. It, it makes us get inquisitive of this kind of dangerous, looming, small but subversive, subtle but significant, dangerous entity that infects and spreads from one kingdom to the next and propagates, really, the kingdom of evil in the middle of the kingdom of heaven if there is a yeast of the Pharisee, I want to make sure I don't have it, I think is the question. So what is that yeast? What is the small and subtle but deeply significant and sometimes secretive thing that lurks and looms in the hearts of Herodians and Gentiles and Jews and Christians alike inside of every single boat? What is that yeast? I want to know what it is. I think that the answers lie somewhere in the passage of verse 14 and verse 16. Number one, verse 14, the disciples forgot to bring the bread. Why did Jesus say forget, you know, 
Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Except for he senses that the yeast of the Pharisees is not something around them, but something that's gotten into their boat. They had forgotten to bring the bread except for that one loaf. And the problem was, again, not the fact that they forgot the bread. It's the fact that they forgot the bread maker. Verse 16, we get a little bit more of a clue here. And so they discuss with one another, it, it must be because we have no bread. Do you remember the beginning of this whole boat, bread, boat, bread, boat, bread rhythm? When they got into their first boat, the very first thing that Jesus said to them, he actually got up on this uh, natural amphitheater across the lake and he, and he preached this, this sermon about seeds and soil. And the irony is that actually the words were an amphitheater across the lake and his words were actually kind of like the seeds. And he says that there are some seeds that grow um, for a little bit of time and they get choked out by the sun. And then there's some seeds that get swallowed up by birds and there's some seeds that get scattered on the path. But some seeds multiply into 30, 16, 40 fold. It's like he's saying there is this seed that it's small and subtle and secretive, but over time would grow in significance into the kingdom of heaven. He opened the bread boat, bread boat, bread boat deja vu with a parable and a riddle about a small seed that brings the kingdom of heaven. But now he's gotten another metaphor at the end of chapter 8, which is just as small and just as subtle and just as subversive, but instead of creating the kingdom of heaven, it creates the kingdom of evil. These two parallel small secretive substances that he, that he bookmarks on the two different sides. And the clue that we have in verse 14 and verse 16 is that it has to do with this bread. It's the forgetting, not just the bread, but the bread maker next to them, and the foolishness to think that the answer that they need is not in more Jesus, but in more bread. If Jesus is saying that the first seed is subtle and strong and pervasive that can create the kingdom of heaven, the seed is a mustard seed that represents faith, what is it that he's closing his ministry and his public ministry with other than to say that there's another seed in the soil that can compete with that seed and that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is always fear. Between the bread and the boat and the bread and the boat, what is the one sermon that always crescendos at the end of these scenarios that you don't miss the message of what the real bread was supposed to be? Once you get into the boat, you oftentimes forget what you just saw on that mountain when you're in the middle of that storm. And what is the message that he says to them every single time when he walks out uh, and he speaks to that wave and he calms the storm? What is it he says to his disciples when he calms the storm except for this thing about the seed? Fear not, it's me. What's the, what's the sermon, right? When you go through the bread and the boat and the bread and the boat, the cycles of pain, right? But then, but then um, rest and then struggle and then faith. What is the thing that he... He imparts to them the second time when he comes off the mountain and walks onto the water and he calms the storm when he comes in. Don't forget the lesson about the boat and the bread. This is not about bread and boats. It is about faith. And the opposite of faith is fear. So fear not. Fear not. What is the seed, the small and subversive seed that can create and abound and strengthen the kingdom of heaven other than faith, the size of a mustard seed? That's all that it would take to get into the soul of just one person with one cup of cold water. You could change the world with just a little bit of faith. But equally and just as pervasive and sneaky and sly and subversive is another seed. There's another seed in our room today that's not just faith. But it's the fear. What if we don't have enough bread? What if I have bread today but I don't have it tomorrow? What if I don't have a bread and I just take it and I have to hide it in my, in my tent and it might become maggots because I need to take control because there's nobody else looking out for me in this world other than me, other than me. And so there is no room for faith in this world. There's only room for soldiers. There's only room for struggle. There's only room for, for taking control and taking terms in my own head. What is, the, what is the seed of the kingdom of evil except for the fear that we don't have enough bread? And so this is the sermon in a sentence. I think that this, like you can't get the left and the right to agree about anything. 
except outside of Jesus, that the left and the right hate Jesus. Have you noticed that? Every other religion in the world is cool, except for Jesus. It's almost like overplaying the, the hand and, and, and easy to spot that deception. But what is the commonality between Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians, legalists, liberals, and lawless? Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians share the same yeast because just as the kingdom of heaven is sown in faith, so the kingdom of, of evil is sown in fear. Have you ever tried, parents in the room, to raise kids in fear? How does it work out for us, parents, when the, when the motive and the engine of, of your parenting is coming out of what if they don't get enough food? What if they get picked on in school? What if they don't find the right spouse? What if they find a spouse in abuse? Like, what if, if, if the dashboard of your head and the decision-making mechanism gets hijacked by fear, what does that do to your parent? Does anything good in your parenting come out of fear? Leadership. Anybody done any leadership before? Led a business? Got in front of people? Anybody led anything great out of insecurity? Can you point to anybody that you've ever been led by that was motivated and got up in the world to prove themselves that they're worth something with their leadership and found anything fruitful out of doing that? The seed of fear will only create evil. As a matter of fact, arguably, it's not, the love of, it's not money that you know, ruins the world. It's the love of money, which comes out of fear. The greatest seed, right, of the kingdom of evil is here. And so, so the invitation here that Jesus is saying is not, not an exit from fear, but a freedom from it. The opportunity here is that today, you and I will wake up with options on the table for people that we love to trust or have suspicion for them. And when somebody acts outside of their character, you have a decision to make of trusting in Jesus or trusting in their actions. And that gap of the things you don't know, you have a choice today of faith or fear. And no matter what theology you have or how many times you've been to church, it's never going to graduate you from that question. It's not easy to choose trust when it's, easy, when it's excuse me, it's not easy to choose trust. It's always easier to choose suspicion. There will always be something to be worried about. The second that you get through the storm, you're going to walk into another one. And so the point is not avoiding storms. It's how can I get faith in the storm? Nobody graduates from this, from this test. And there's no difference between Bill Maurer and me other than tomorrow's decision, or rather today's decision, of the fear possibility that I have, whether or not I'm going to choose into that fear or choose into the faith that I have in Jesus. And so the solution, it's always been right in front of them. It wasn't the bread. It was the bread maker. It was not the boat. It was, it was Jesus. The whole point of these lessons was not to get your belly full. It was the whole point of the lesson was to understand that Jesus does give bread because he loves bodies. But more importantly, he gives himself because Jesus doesn't just give bread. He is the bread. A meal without Jesus is emptiness and hunger with Jesus is fullness. There's a quote that Jesus gives. You remember he, he sends his disciples out to go get him a snack. And he's hungry. He says he's famished. And even in his hunger, he ministers to the woman at the well. And this great surprise comes as the disciples come back to him in John chapter 4, and they bring him the food. And lo and behold, Jesus sent them away hungry, ministers, and they come back and he's full. And his explanation for that is in John 4, 34, he says, the reason why sometimes my body is, is empty but my soul is full is because the, the body was made for the soul, not soul for, you know, the, the, the body was made for the soul, not soul for the body. And he says it clear as day in, in John 4, 34, my food is not in my refrigerator. My true sustenance, my true satisfaction, the thing that, that actually makes me feel sustained and satisfied does not come from Publix. He says, it is to do the will of him who sent me. There are so many people with so much food in this country, and they are so hungry and thirsty for righteousness, whether or not they know it. They are not, we are not bodies with a soul. We're souls with bodies. 
And we will pervasively, perennially be hungry and starving spiritually if we continue to feed our bodies with media and movies and money and all these other things without feeding our soul because we are not bodies with souls, we're souls with bodies. That the boat, he doesn't make good boats. It's not the boat that saved them. I'm really glad that we got this one boat, you know, from Academy Sports. That must be the reason why we didn't drown. No, you didn't drown because the boat, you drowned because Jesus was on the boat. And no matter what it is that, you know, airline company we pick or insurance plan, it's not the safety of the plane, it's the safety of Jesus. And so think about it this way. We would go into a restaurant after, after lunch or after church today, and we'd go to lunch and we'd do so because we're hungry. And because a lot of times we're thinking with our bodies and not necessarily with our soul, we're going to leave that restaurant judging the success of that, whether or not it ate or didn't eat or threw it up or didn't throw up. We were going to say we won or we lost based on whether or not like the food. But maybe Jesus is saying his little John 4 testimony is that the food is what you eat, but it's also how you treated the waiter. What if the fulfillment of your heart and your soul was actually subversively different from what she thought was filling your body And you might actually leave Cracker Barrel today thinking you got your job done, but you actually are leaving hungrier than you came because you fed your body, but you didn't feed your your soul. You didn't enjoy the person you were with. You sat there and scrolled on your phone, and you have heartburn now, and you're you're $40 lighter with no spiritual sustenance to to think of. What if the plane trip, those of you guys that are afraid of the plane, right, and you get on there, and they do the air mask thing, and you're like, oh, I'm glad they didn't crash this time. I made it. What if you're actually in more danger after the plane than before it because you were supposed to witness to the person next to you and witnessing is something that Christians need just as much as non-believers need and we're actually sacrificing our safety by sitting on a plane thinking we're safe, hiding the gospel from others, thinking we're safe, we're actually putting ourselves in more danger than if the plane crashed. Safety and sustenance is not in boats and bread. It is in Jesus. Jesus is not just giving these things. He is these things. And life apart from Jesus is, is, is eternal st- uh, 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 starvation. Eternal danger that we miss up body and, and soul. And so I just have, I have seven questions for you today. And I'm just going to take them from the Don't blame me. I have seven questions because they're Jesus questions. And questions are better than sermons because they ask you about your soul. And I'm going to read them right off the page. And they speak for themselves. But I think these questions are the, these are the feeders and the safety of our soul that give us the source, not just the resources. And they ask us questions that really get us fed and really get us safe. And this is what I think is the only way that, that, that immunizes us from any kind of uh, yeast of, of, the, um, of the Sadducees, Herodians, or CNN, or Fox. It's, 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 it's not a question of bread. It's a question of fear. And how do we deal with fear? This is, this is, these are the seven questions. They're up on the screen. Number one, are you still talking about coupons? Like, are you still talking about hormones and are you still talking about what school you're going to and the nickels and dimes that you're saving are you still talking about pop culture and like are you you really think that the the stakes of the kingdom of heaven are bought and lost by what gym membership you want do you think this is about bread still like i know the disciples are slow we're even slower than them sometimes how are you focusing on the bread rather than the bread maker the point of this is not the bread or the surplus or the abundance or the lack it is about the bread maker and eating food without Recognizing the bread maker is, is death. It is maggots. Number two, are you paying attention to what you see? Do you not see? Do you not understand? Jesus says. The, the people that are going to, I promise you, the people that agree with Jesus the most is people on their deathbed. Because you can live for 20 years and think that all that matters is Instagram followers and clothes and stuff like that. 70-year-olds know the better. You know, people that are, you know, older and older, older the older you, more time you spend on this life, you know more and more that Jesus was right with what he was saying. Are you paying attention to what Jesus says, and find anybody that saved themselves 
or anybody that is lacking or regretful that has been saved by Jesus? Are you paying attention? Because he's not actually detouring you from the truth. He invites your doubt because it's a vehicle towards what's really true about your life. That, that Jesus is way more than showing up on Sunday and having a, a club to go to. Are you paying attention to what you see? Number three, do you repent of false fears and of loves? It's not a change of habits. It is a change of hearts. And are you recognizing that your boyfriend is not Jesus? And it's a beautiful thing to be given the gift of having a spouse. But if you have the spouse and replace him for Jesus, it's just going to ruin your life. Are you repenting yet? Have you gotten it yet? Do you not understand? That's how he closes. Do you get it yet? How many times do I have to feed you for you to get this? Will you make time to listen, to listen to what you see as you carve out time to go on a walk and process like you're, you're paying attention, but Jesus is speaking about it's what the bread is for, not what the bread is that matters the most. How you review the testimony of God. In fact, the thing that we would need the most in times of trial and fear is not actually learning something new, but remembering something we already know. Do you have a system to write down what God has said to you and remind you of in the character and the nature of God? Because there will come a time when you need to go and draw on that stuff Ultimately, I think he's saying, do you remember? He's saying that it's, it's not, right now in your fear, you have a, a choice of suspicion and trust. And the answer, the, the, the substance that you need in that is not another sermon. It's the testimony. It's the thing that you already know. How has Jesus worked through your strengths? The two last miracles, remember he says 12 and 7, is the testimony of the Jews, which represents the strength of man, and the testimony of the Gentiles. That I, wasn't even, I was not even chosen. I have no merit in front of you. I have no entitlement towards the grace of God, yet you still chose me, even while I was a sinner. And so we bring both of our strengths and our weaknesses to Jesus. In other words, a lot of times the way that church is anemic is because we give our first and our best to our family and our work, and we give our least and our leftovers to Jesus. That is the, that is the chronic problem and the cancer of our communities is that we give our best to the world and give our least to Jesus. And God is calling us to give our best, even when it hurts, but then find out, as the Gentiles would prophesy to us, that even our best is not enough. And it's the offering that counts. It's not the completeness. He's the one that multiplies the bread that makes. It's not about how much we can bring. It's how much he can do with what we bring that makes the difference. It's bringing our strengths, but recognizing that ultimately even our strengths are our weaknesses. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.